What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, data show that retail investors are getting in on the rally, with new accounts surging at some popular brokerages. We talked to the head of investment strategy at one of the leading ETF providers about how their products are being used to play the market. Plus, there have been some major moves in the FX markets, particularly as dollar-yen breaks out of a multi-year trend. And Sarah, I've been meaning to ask you, do you think we should once again do the craziest thing I saw in markets at the end of the show? I do think we should do it at the end of the show. Why, How why do you feel all of a sudden that? change? I feel okay. good about it. I just it. want to make sure you're on board with it, you know. I'm I'm scared. You, you kind of have a lo- you have kind of a losing streak going. And I, I, okay, first of all, I don't have a losing streak going. <laughs> I I, w- I would even say that I came prepared. We had a, a couple listeners who really came out of the woods in this last week to really hit on Mike. For one, we had a comment from Corman one three four who said, "Like the Yankees, I'm always rooting against Mike." So Mike. Not everyone's on your side, particularly uh, not me and not Corman one three four. Corman one one three four, whoever you are. I am like the Yankees of the crazy thing. <laughs> but as you know, the crazy things in markets are one of my passions. And as you also know, another uh, very big interest in mine is leveraged ETFs. Uh, we've talked about this before. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by them. So we have a great guest uh, this week to discuss them with us. His name is uh, Simeon Hyman. He's the head of investment strategy at ProShares. Uh, Simeon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us uh, this week, first time on the show, is uh, Bloomberg's own uh, Rachel Evans. She's a managing editor, uh, covered ETFs for a long time, now shifting focus a little bit to bonds and FX, uh, but still one of our in-house ETF gurus who uh, we're happy to have on the show. Good to be here. All right. Uh, Simi, let's start with you. I I do want to get into sort of what's going on in the leveraged uh, ETF space, but I... One of my favorite pro shares ETFs has got to be Paws, P-A-W-Z. And this is uh, from the owner of a Golden Doodle. You know, a, a neighbor of ours got a go- Golden Doodle in Matouche, New Jersey. Then we got one. And then next thing you know, they're all over, all over Matouche. We had a Labradoodle 15 years ago. He's, so well, he's at- 15 years old now. He's still hanging in there. But <laughs> we, we were before you. <laughs> way, way ahead of me, of course. But Simeon, talk to us about the Paws ETF, just the rationale behind it. I know... Uh, you know, it, it buys uh, pet store companies, pet medicine companies. I'm fascinated by this ETF. Talk to us a little bit about how it came about and sort of what the reaction has been. Sure. Yeah, the ticker's P-A-W-Z, and, and yes, we do pride ourselves on clever clever tickers. For, <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, so this one counts as a clever ticker. But uh, look, we, we look at themes all the time, and I think the challenge when you look for themes is, 
you you got to find where money's really being made. Um, so here, there's real money being made. And anybody who has had to take care of their dog, or even you know, God forbid, have to actually have serious health issues with their dogs, know how expensive it can be. And also the trends towards premiumization and humanization. I mean, right now there are more households in the U.S. with pets than there are uh, than there are children. And the spending has been incredibly robust. And of course, as you, uh, it wouldn't surprise you to hear that the spending actually increased during the Great Recession. But there's also money to be made. You know, a, a, Around half the ETF is animal health care. And, and one of the ways I, I sort of think about the space is uh, you know, fresh off of the, uh, the uh, debates and all the political stuff that's going on. Uh, I note the following. There's no Medicaid for dogs. you got to pay for that there's some emerging insurance companies but uh it's a place where there there are margin there's money to be made so um we thought the opportunity was there uh we think uh this is you know a long-term you know opportunity we think we did this right in other words we we appropriately i found companies that were if you will the pure plays real pet care companies you know sometimes you see these themes like uh, you know a blockchain idea and it ends up being a f- bunch of financial services company you're like do I, do I really get blockchain or do i get something else we think we really did it right we think the the opportunities for the firms are there the right companies are in the etf and you know what it's conversational alpha. You know, if you're talk, if you're a financial advisor and you're talking to your clients, it resonates because uh, their pets are near and dear to their heart, and they're spending so much money on them. It would be nice for them to make a little money off of the uh, pet care industry as well. I love this idea of conversational alpha. This is something that the Global X has talked about a little bit on uh, the Trillions podcast that, that covers uh, ETFs. And it's this kind of idea that you've got something to go to your clients and, and talk about that <clears throat> goes beyond the returns. So you're not just thinking about the return side of things. You're not just thinking about the strategy, but you're able to, to say, well, look, you know, you own a dog, you own a Labradoodle or a, a Golden Retriever. And it's something that people can like really identify with. And they can think about that in terms of how it might boost their portfolio. So, Simeon, you said there's money to be made. This is a, a long term opportunity. But if I look at the market cap of the fund right now, it's roughly $56 million. I mean, how do you get over this hurdle? What is the conversation with investors to actually get people to want to come and invest in a product of this sort rather than just going to a broad market fund um, and have them zeroing in on one thematics, but also thematics surrounding the pet care space? Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. So first, 56 is is uh, a... a a nice viable size for an ETF. So, you know, we launched this a little bit over a year ago. So it's going in the right direction. But absolutely, these are, you know, that satellites to a, to a core uh, to a core investment portfolio. So, you know, if one were to have an appropriately structured long-term investment portfolio, you would indeed have this as an addition to to a core holding. So nobody would be suggesting that your your you know, the core of your retirement fund should be in a pet care ETF. But uh, it's going to uh, it really has the opportunity to add alpha, to add diversification, uh, and to add a little bit of extra juice to a, to a core portfolio. And those are the are the conversations that we're having, and we think they're going pretty well. We're we're certainly looking to grow it, but it's been moving in the right direction since its launch. You know, Simeon, as uh, Sarah will tell you, if, 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 the way I think about it, if, if I'm bullish on pets, I want to go triple levered paws. He wants triple levered I want a triple, paws. Triple, triple, triple levered paws. Mike wants triple levered everything. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> no, but I do want to sort of segue into that discussion because I know there's been uh, some backlash, obviously, to leveraged ETFs. Uh, the F- SEC um, wants to sort of 
implement a system where brokerages have to sort of quiz clients on whether they're sophisticated enough to to understand what's going on in in leveraged and and I suppose inverse ETFs as well. Could you sort of get us up to date on where that um, debate stands right now? Uh, I know the SEC is still accepting comments about this. Is that right? Yeah, I, I'm actually not really the right person at the firm to to talk about the uh, the current proposals. You know, what I can tell you, of course, is that leverage and reverse ETFs have been around for quite a while and uh, have been valuable tools for investors for um, both hedging positions in their portfolio, looking for opportunities where they have particular points of views have been valuable tools. But unfortunately, I'm not the right person at the firm to be talking about the uh, updates on on what's going on with the proposal. I can chime in on that. Um, So, um, this is something that we've been following quite closely um, for actually for a couple of years. This is kind of part of this long um, thought out derivatives proposal that the SEC has been mulling over for a while. Uh, They finally came out towards the end of last year with some proposals and a sort of carve out provision from the derivatives rule that would apply to to leverage funds. And what they've kind of suggested is this kind of give with one hand, take with the other kind of approach in that they are proposing lifting what has essentially been a moratorium on new issuers of leverage products, so ProShares, for example, and its competitor Direction have been able to sell uh, leverage products, but we haven't seen any new issuers being able to come into the space for since I think around 2010. So they're proposing lifting that moratorium, but the downside is that they do want these, from an issuer perspective, the downside is that they do want these uh, greater controls at the point of sale. So uh, for the brokerages that may be selling these um, leverage products, they would have to ensure that the client has a certain degree of sophistication, that they have a certain number of assets, that they have a certain level of understanding before they are able to, to green light at a sale of that of those products. So the SEC has been collecting comments on this. Process has been quite interesting in this space and that they did come out and, and encourage their shareholders to actually respond to the SEC and, and to give their thoughts on this process. But it's still something that's kind of um, you know, ongoing and the SEC has yet to come out with a final proposal. You know, what I find interesting, Rachel, is if I want to... So the way I envision this is if I log on to my E-Trade or my, uh, you know, Ameritrade account uh, and I try to buy a levered uh, ETF, I'll, I'll get some sort of pop-up saying you have to answer these questions. I don't... And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the same is true if, say, I want to open a margin account or want to start short-selling stocks o- over the same platform. Um, so I wonder if would that be a next step, do you think, that that they would s- sort of start cracking down on that as well? So, so there's an interesting thing with kind of purchasing leverage products already in that you do sometimes have a few boxes to, to go through already without having these extra kind of provisions that the SEC is contemplating in place. Um, you know, some people will have a box that you kind of have to tick, but there isn't... Um, you know, for, for an options-based um, uh, contract, you would have to actually get uh, documents through the mail, sign them, fill them all in, send them back. There's no kind of um, level um, like that that applies for leveraged products. And the argument goes that you know if you have products that have options embedded or other derivatives embedded, maybe there should be kind of a, a similar sort of process to ensure that you understand in the same way that there is for, for more complex um, you know, purchases of derivatives. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see um, you know, kind of like how the SEC sort of goes from here, whether this is sort of the further um, edge of their kind of policy making, because let's, let's remember, this is a proposal. This is not 
kind of written in stone and these things looking at what the um, different commissioners from the SEC have come out and said on this there is clearly some division between the sort of Republican and Democrat leaning commissioners and this is a bit of a dialogue it's a little bit of a give and take here so I think it's hard to say at this stage whether things veer towards the you know increasing kind of client checks and that becoming more and more uh, something we see um, expanded to other markets or whether actually it kind of reigns back and they find a middle ground where maybe we see a little bit more required but not quite what's being contemplated at the moment. So Simeon, regardless of what's going on in the regulatory arena, some of the leveraged leveraged funds that you guys are well known for are the ProShares Ultra Pro Triple Q, CQQQ, then there's the short version SQQQ. Can you walk us through maybe how you typically see investors actually utilizing your products? And then from your perspective, as the head of investment strategy, how do you actually go about having conversations with investors as well about the right way to actually put them to use? Yeah, I'll answer that in two parts because one, with regards to the, uh, the the leverage ETFs and the leverage university ETFs, we have a ton of education on our website to help people think about uh, how they can express different views and create portfolio constructions that make sense and use them in a way that will help them meet their objectives. Um, but actually, um, myself and my team, we spend most of our time talking about um, our, our sort of, for us, traditional buy and hold strategies. In fact, our biggest ETF uh, today, over $7 billion, is ticker NOBL, which is the S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats ETF. Um, so we talk about our suite of uh, dividend growth ETFs um, more than just about anything else uh, on the platform these days. And in fact, it's very applicable to the current environment because companies that consistently grow their dividends uh, have you know, been a, a really nice way to uh, be able to uh, participate reasonably well when markets go up. But when you have a bad quarter like we had in 2018, the down capture, the defensiveness has, has worked very well as well. So uh, that's been a really uh, uh, core part of our conversations with, uh, uh, with financial advisors and other clients uh, for a little while now. I love the name of that, the aristocrats. What is it? You have to have uh, grown your dividend for, is it 20 years going or something? 25 for the uh, large cap. And we think we also have ticker REGL, which is the S&P 400 aristocrats and SMDV, the small cap. And there's almost a little bit of an interesting, uh, I don't want to say more per se, but certainly an interesting opportunity with mid and small caps because As we know, large caps have run this market for a while, but it's perhaps even a a bigger, has been a bigger impact that people note. Over the last decade, on a price to book basis, mid and small cap stocks have gone from parity to the S&P 500 to trading at a 40% discount, 60 cents on the dollar. Now, the problem is there's a lot of junk when you get down there. But you resolve the junk problem if you invest in the dividend growers, the consistent dividend growers in mid and small. So, uh, you know, we've been talking not just about the flagship NOBL, but also REGL and midcap and and SMDV uh, in small, uh, which resonates with folks. You know, you're looking at the tape and wondering, things keep going up, but I'm a little nervous. This is a nice nice alternative for that. Things keep going up, but I'm a little nervous uh, state of mind. (laughs) But but at the same time, I want to ask, because I feel like we've almost been in this state of mind for quite a while now, this idea that things keep going up, but I'm pretty nervous. And with that, we've heard multiple strategists, portfolio managers, many people I've spoken to saying, all right, so that means look at small caps, look at emerging markets, look elsewhere, don't look at U.S. large caps. But that just continues to be what keeps going up. And you would imagine maybe making people more nervous. I mean, is the solution really to keep going elsewhere? 
even though it's been roughly, I guess, a year now over that since we had that correction in 2018 in which we did see this performance continue. Yeah. So first, I'm kind of a classic asset allocation guy. So yeah, somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of your portfolio probably should be U.S. large caps or for U.S. investor. And if you love it, you have a little more. If you hate it, you have a little less. And to put that in perspective, uh, if you think about the valuations of large caps, I don't get too worked up uh, because, and you've, you've all heard this many times before, because how low interest rates are. You know, if you plot the uh, PE of the S&P 500 against interest rates, at a 2% 10-year, you get a 20 multiple. And we're now at one and a half times, and we're at somewhere around a 20 multiple. And by the way, we're starting to have a little bit of earnings growth. In Q4, we had about 1% earnings growth for the S&P 500. But if you take out energy, you had actually over a 4% increase in earnings. That's the first time in four quarters. And I would argue it's it's a little bit of kind of this... Uh, you have to follow the bouncing ball, but it's an artifact of the corporate tax cut. The corporate tax cut temporarily boosted margins in 2018, but then for the large part of 2019, that started to be eroded in price, just like we learned in freshman uh, economics. The tax cut went through price for a lot of companies that are, are price competitive. Where you don't have to anniversary it anymore using old retail speak, and in Q4, you started to see some earnings growth. So if you put that together, it's not a terribly bearish story for large caps, particularly when we're in this almost Goldilocks of 2% GDP growth. We have 2% GDP growth because we have a very strong consumer in a middling manufacturing sector, and that means the Fed can't do anything, but we're growing just enough. So I don't want to be I'm – not, I'm not a particular pessimist, such a pessimist on large cap that you should dump all your large cap and go into mid-small and emerging markets. But I would absolutely agree with the notion that, as I mentioned, there's a relative valuation opportunity in mid and small. And I'll pile on to the EM a little bit too. One of the things that people I think uh, don't are, aren't as familiar with with regards to emerging market stocks, and by the way, we have ticker EMDV, which is our dividend grower in EM, as I do a ticker check because that's part of my job. Uh, <laughs> this the, guy's good at getting the plugs in. I, uh, I'm an ETF company, so I got <laughs> to put, put tickers out there. That's what we do. So in emerging markets, the the quality is actually higher than in developed markets. So in other words, margins and returns on assets and equities are actually higher in EM. We know that the virus is an overhang in EM. We also suspect there's stimulus coming along the way, not just from China, but look, we even might get a cut in the US and that's always good for EM. And I think if we see some stability in commodity prices, I know that's a big if, people looking at oil, copper and all that, um, there's an opportunity there. So. I, I am I am on board with the notion that there's some relative value opportunities in things like mid, small, and EM, uh, but uh, I don't think valuations are that scary in, in, in core U.S. large cap equities either. Now, Rachel, uh, Simeon sounds fairly optimistic, um, but I know you were looking at some of the flows into the ProShares funds uh, year to date. I got to say the the money coming into the pro shares is is does not look very optimistic. Tell us a little bit about what the flows look like to you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's all, you always have to be a little bit careful when you look at leverage funds and flows because you do see a lot of people kind of using these very much as get in, get out kind of trading vehicles. But there is a sign, you know, when you see a flow, it means that people need more shares, therefore more shares are being created because people want to, to use that fund. And we've been seeing a lot of that in um, SQQQ and in SH, which are two short funds, one against kind of the, the NASDAQ and, and one against um, the, the S&P 500. And that suggests to 
me that the people are hedging themselves or betting against um, the, the current highs that we're seeing um, in the S&P 500 and, and the Nasdaq. We are starting to see a little bit of signs that maybe we could see a, a slight pullback in stocks. It's been a couple of wobbles this week. So I think it'll be kind of interesting to see sort of whether those flows continue or whether we see a little bit of reversal if some of the, the kind of froth is taken out of the market. Look, I mean, people, when the virus is creating volatility, and you know, people always look for hedges in times of volatility. It, it, it's not. It, it's quite well known that after just about every one of these uh, pandemics, epidemics, viruses, you look six to twelve months out, the market's up. But in the short run, things can happen. Uh, you know, outside of the uh, of the opportunities that you discussed with with our vehicles, I also point out a, a classic old school hedge. You know, zero coupon bonds are up thirteen percent year to date. The problem is. With a 27, 28 duration, uh, all we need is this to calm down, and the 10 year goes back to two percent, and you lost 12 or 13 percent. So, um, that, but that's but that's something that uh, that that's old school uh, a hedge right there because yeah, if the if the virus um, you know really kicks in, for all we know, you could see a further rally in treasuries. From our perspective, we think in the medium term. Yeah, the uh, the odds of anything are a little bit of uh, you think of two percent on the ten year as normalization, but I guess it would be directionally normalization at this point. Uh, we've actually got a couple of interest rate hedged um, corporate bond ETFs. IGHG is the it's our investment grade flavor, and HYG is high yield. Um, and as we had a little bit of movement out in spreads, if you want to take advantage of that, but hedge out the treasury rate risk and just have the corporate piece that's it's almost like credit arb light in uh in or a credit arb strategy in an index form that's been something that people have been talking about what could you do if your data was working for you and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. So, uh, Simeon, to get back to that idea of asset allocation, I, I think you said, what, 40, you'd be 40, 45% U.S. large caps. What does the rest of uh, your portfolio uh, look like? Yeah, so then you have your, your slug of mid and small on the order of, uh, you know, another 10 or 15 in small. If I don't add up because I'm not writing this down, don't hold it against me. <laughs> you know, another 10% in, in, uh, in 5 or 10% in small cap, and then something on the order of 20-odd percent in developed international and another 5 to 10% in emerging markets from a baseline standpoint. So the way the logic works, about half the world's equities are outside the U.S., but if you're a U.S. liability person, then you should probably have about U.S. dollar liability person. You have about 60% U.S. broken out pro rata by market cap, and then the uh, international stuff, about two-thirds developed, one-third uh, one emerging. Hey, we're journalists. You don't have to worry about us doing math. <laughs> we're not going to check your math. You could take Mike for his well, word. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I want to. There's one other uh, opportunity that we've seen. It's sort of a quasi-sector opportunity that we've been talking a lot about that, uh, and that's in the infrastructure space. I'll have to do another ticker because that's my job. But our ticker Plus. is uh, TOLZ, another clever ticker because it's tolls, like a toll taker. Um, 
the uh, the, the infrastructure sector, and, and we follow the uh, the Brookfield Index of owners and operators of, of the infrastructure assets. So in other words, not the sort of construction company and the, and the drillers. These are the people who own the assets, for example, cell phone towers and airports and things like that. You're currently getting in that space two times the yield of the S&P 500 at only two-thirds the price to book. And you're actually getting 100 basis points more yield than utilities, which, you know, if if bonds go up at all, you really got a problem there. So we think this is a clever space. Because you own the assets, you're making money even if there isn't the the long-awaited infrastructure bill. And if there is one, you have a little bit of ticket to upside too. Uh, and a lot of people have been talking to us about that sort of quasi-sector opportunity in infrastructure uh, as, look, you know, to get uh, 4% yield in this environment, is uh, it's hard to do even in bonds. Right. A lot of politics talk, but it will be very interesting over the next couple of years if we do see both sides of the table come together for some type of infrastructure bill. Uh, but Mike, before we get to the craziest thing, Rachel, let's move into your new world of the <laughs> currency space uh, because we have seen some crazy moves there. The dollar just continuing to outperform. It's pretty unbelievable. I'm pretty sure uh, in the latest Bank of America fund managers survey, they said a net 54% of those surveyed said that the dollar is overvalued. I think many people have said this for quite a while now, but that's the second highest level since 2002. And at that, we've also seen just a complete breakdown in the yen against the U.S. dollar. And this even as people are moving to safe havens, the like of gold elsewhere, too. What is it about this move in dollar yen that that's so different and interesting right now? Yeah, there's this huge irony, isn't it, that we've got this massive kind of risk-off sentiment and yet the yen is not doing what we would expect the yen to do as kind of a traditional safe haven. And I think there's kind of like a number of different factors that are, are really playing into to, to the yen's weakness there. You know, we've seen, obviously, as you mentioned, kind of this big dollar strength. And that's kind of a move that's been fairly sort of broad-based. Uh, if you look at some of the, the dollar indexes, they're pushing up on kind of significant levels. Uh, one of the, the dollar indexes is looking at kind of the 100 handle, which is kind of seen as a sort of, you know, we love round numbers uh, <laughs> on the side of the table. But uh, yeah, no, I think that that is kind of an an interesting level that people are watching. So there is this broad kind of strength. But I think when it comes to Japan, there is um, both fears that kind of some of the the, um, handling of the coronavirus, that the quarantining of of that cruise ship there, uh, and kind of whether there could be more of an outbreak um, sort of within Japan proper, whether that could kind of start to to sort of pop up in the news over the next few days. There are signs, of course, there that the the economy and growth is not going to be, um, you know, sort of heading in, in the right direction. And that seems to be another other kind of thing that, that's weighing on, on Japan's sentiment. Um, and then we are moving towards the end of the fiscal year over there as well. So there's a, a sense of reallocating uh, sort of assets out, out of the yen and into um, other assets, um, into other currencies like the dollar, for example. Um, you actually do see this crossing over into ETF land just to, to, bring, to bring it full circle because we have seen there's a, a JP Morgan fund um, out there, BBJP, I can play tickets too, um, that, that kind of has been seeing big outflows. But that's somebody else's week. ticket. I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Have to have to broaden it out a little. Um, but no, um, but we've seen big big outflows from that um, over the last um, you know couple of days, few weeks really. Uh, that money seems to be potentially moving into a European-focused ETF. Um, when you look at kind of the, the holders of, of both of those products, um, there's one big Goliath in the room. JP Morgan itself is a very large holder of these. And we do see kind of these sorts of products used by model portfolio 
notes and used to reallocate kind of um, money at home. But I think it's interesting that the, this is kind of a not just a sort of yen situation, but it's a kind of Japan um, situation. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of plays out um, over, over the next few days, particularly as we do see kind of, you know, this move into um, other types of havens. You know, we are seeing kind of the move into the dollar. That seems to be a favorite place. Gold, as you mentioned, um, and treasuries. You see that in the ETF space too. GLD are uh, doing very well. TLT, which is uh, longer term treasuries, also getting inflows. Yeah, I thought it was it was surprised me when the coronavirus started breaking out and the yen was rallying on this haven demand. When the the main risk is right in Asia, you know, is that, <laughs> right. that's, back door, that's, right? the, that's yeah. the time when the yen stops working. As and you look at the and, chart in 1998 and the, the Asian financial crisis, and it wasn't very strong then either. So and it, Japan has already been dealing with some of its own issues too. At that, yeah. then you introduce the coronavirus. So yeah. I, I think this is just. A, I'm amazed that people look to currencies to hedge equity market exposure because it, it's there's so many moving parts you know the better answer is either an explicit explicit hedge or the zero coupon bonds at least you know if that virus gets a heck of a lot worse that there's going to be a treasury rail the odds of that i shouldn't say with certainty but the odds of that are much much higher than trying to figure out if the yen's going to be the safe haven but the virus is on its shore and that to me there's just too many moving parts there to use that as a as a uh, as a hedge for other forms of risk in your portfolio okay well, Simeon, there is no haven from the craziest thing we saw in markets. I don't know. See what you did there, Mike. <laughs> I don't know if they warned you about this gimmick of ours, but uh, uh, every week we we discuss the craziest things we've seen in markets this week. Oddly enough, I tend to see the craziest things. I'm, I'm just going to go out and say that, Sarah. I know that upset you. Mike thinks he wins every week, yeah. Simeon. Right. Um, but there are a very, I would say, large group of people who would very much disagree. Uh, Hater, haters going to hate. some haters coming out. Um, but first, I, I will say, we, we did have someone weigh in on Twitter. Uh, but before we get to that, remember, you can also give us a call at our very own Bloomberg podcast hotline. Leave us a message. Ask us questions. Let us know about the craziest things that you guys have seen in markets. And we might even play your message on the show. So for that, the number is 646 324 Four nine zero, but uh, we did get a good weigh-in on Twitter. This one came from at JY Squall. He said, "When decentralized finance (parentheses DeFi) discovers what flash loans are used for." Yeah, Sarah, I I'm going to try to explain this one. Go for All it. Right. It's this a is a little wonky. This is kind of like when Dad makes dinner, though. So I'm I might I might burn this and you know call the hotline if I got this wrong, but. Basically, he's talking about this outfit, BZX, which is sort of like a peer-to-peer type of lender, but with crypto. And um, what does all, happens to pretty much every crypto exchange eventually? Gets hacked. They get hacked. And this one got hacked to the tune of uh, $645,000, which I think as far as crypto hacks go is is pretty much small potatoes, but still a very interesting story. And, and we thank... JY Squall, if if that indeed is your real name, we thank you for the uh, contribution. I have a feeling maybe it's not. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Rachel, do you have any crazy observations from this week? <laughs> well, uh, my crazy observation is is one that you could probably have done last week as well. But I've been watching Tesla, um, like because we saw that enormous crazy, crazy, crazy spike, um, and and then it kind of it rained back in. Everyone was like, "See, told you it was a bubble," and it's just been creeping higher and higher. And yesterday, kind of like we we went to a new kind of I don't think it was at quite the high, but we were back around. Around that kind of 950 level.
level. So that to me is really fascinating. Um, I know there was a lot of talk when we initially saw that spike about whether you could overlay the, the Tesla stock price with Bitcoin. And there was a lot of like, no, no, these are very, very different ideas. But seriously, try it. Yeah. It's a little bit scary. Tesla is a perennial favorite uh, of the crazy segments. I've used it in the past segments. couple of weeks. Right. I mean, we yeah. have a new price target this week of $928 a share within minutes, essentially. You have Tesla trading above $928 a share. Um, I'll, I'll share my crazy thing because it's very much a compliment to Tesla. I've been living in this space lately. I've actually been working Asia hours to help out throughout the coronavirus. So my U.S. daylight hours to search for crazy things have been somewhat limited. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> one that's been a clear favorite over the past week has been Virgin Galactic. Uh, pretty right, that's a good one. Unbelievable. Uh, similar space as Tesla. Uh, the ticker is SPCE, but similar space when it comes to movements. I mean, this is a stock that's now up 220% year date, up 120% in February alone. Uh, so we're just seeing these odd, eccentric, crazy, steep moves uh, across the stock market in very weird, I'm not weird, but favorites. That stock's going to the moon. It's <laughs> oh, punny. That was, yeah, that was a bad joke. Simeon, I know we, we booked you last minute, but uh, did you have a chance to? Oh, I, I came up with one. Oh, All excellent, right. excellent. So this is a little old school. Yeah, the, and you have to so, say so it. So am I. So I. Yeah, you have that. to say it in measured tones because okay. strategists always refer to this in measured tones. I've been watching the Baltic Dry Index. <laughs> <laughs> you, all, have, you have to explain it in that voice the whole time. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the Baltic Dry Index. That's the Dry Container Shipping Index. It's down eighty percent. Eighty percent from twenty five hundred to five hundred. The 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 sort of uh, what twenty five hundred means and five hundred means. Don't worry about it. But it's down eighty percent. And by the way, that is now the depths of the crisis level. So that's kind of nutty. Uh, some people think it's a recession signal. It's obviously much more about the coronavirus and the immediate impact to uh, some of the commodities markets. But that that's huge. Eighty percent is a big big move. So I don't know if that would win me any prize, but it caught my eye. I'll tell you what, Simeon, I like the Baltic Dry a lot. The only reason I will not award you a prize for that <laughs> is that I, I that was one of my crazy things last week, I believe. But you would have oh, had no way of yeah. knowing. No, you would I have had not, no, no way of knowing. I, I listened to a couple of them quickly, but I didn't catch that one. So That's okay. All right, well, Mike set him up pretty strong. And I want to say before you get started, because Andres Ochoa on LinkedIn reached out and he said, Sarah, please make sure Mike sticks to finance-related topics when debating the craziest thing in markets. No more vintage bikes or like occurrences. So, Mike, you better stay honest. All right. All right. That's fair. That's a fair. LinkedIn, all of a sudden we're getting trolled on LinkedIn. What is going on? Man, that, that'll teach me to post on LinkedIn, I got to say. But now I can reveal the winner of the craziest thing all right, let's we hear saw it. in markets this week. And Sarah, with all honesty, Rachel, if you disagree that this is not the craziest thing, please speak up. He's like handing Rachel a $10 bill on the table. <laughs> However, we've all heard of this company, Facebook, right? Uh, $600 billion market cap, one of the most important companies out there. So there's a new book out called Facebook, The Inside Story, uh, written by a longtime technology journalist named Stephen Levy. There was a good review in it this week uh, in Business Week. 600-page book on the history of Facebook. There's one line in this review buried deep inside the review that has caught fire uh, on social media, in the press, even the New York Post. You know, if it shows up in the New York Post, it's a crazy thing. And it is this. Uh, apparently, Mark Zuckerberg suffers from severe perspiration when he speaks at public events. 
So to eliminate the, I guess to eliminate the threat of armpit stains, he has an executive, they say, an executive, not just some intern, an executive in the communications department at Facebook comes and blow dries his armpits before public speeches. Uh, blow dries with heat? Wouldn't that make it worse? Well, that's or cool the, air. That's, what that's I, the question. That's what I was wondering, because I, uh, sorry, I kind of live in a glass house when it comes to heavy pers- perspiration. <laughs> you know, I think this is why our producer, Topher, always seats the guests on the opposite side of the table for me. <laughs> I would assume that blow drying your pits w- would make it worse. Would make it worse. Yeah. But I, maybe they put it on the cool setting. That's what I'm thinking. I don't it's know. It's got to be on the cool setting. Right. Um, but I'm gonna st- I-, I guess I'll have to try it. I don't know. I might start blow drying my pits. But I don't think I can get an executive in the company to do it for me. I think, Mark, come on, man. you got to blow dry your own pits. I think that's illegal these days. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, how much do you have to get paid to blow dry another guy's armpits? Well, if they're an executive, it's an important job. That's true. Well, it's a very yeah. important job. Right. It, it, the chief officer in charge of dry armpits. All right, Rachel, does Mike win? I don't know. Would we say that's markets? Well, yeah. fa- uh, Facebook is, is one of it's the most stock. important stocks. <laughs> in, but did anything <laughs> happen with facebook stock. you keep an eye on that, that share price all right, all right we will and we'll, we'll blame we'll blame sweaty pits <laughs> <laughs> all right uh with that simeon thank you so much for joining us and rachel thanks so much for coming on the show thank pleasure. you what goes up we'll be back next week until then you can find us on the bloomberg terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek, Mike is at Reganonymous, and Rachel Evans is at Rachel Evans underscore NY. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.